0: I want to ask with you to uh, join with me in prayer uh, as we open the Word of God to have it preached. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your goodness. And Lord, every word that we sang, Lord, is a treasure. It is true. It is so good to sing things that are not hopefully true, but are certainly true. And we rejoice that you are our treasure. And Lord, I pray that as your Word now is proclaimed, as it's heralded, as news, And Lord, I pray that we would receive it as the good news it is and that it would transform us and that you would be glorified. I pray that your spirit would do that work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 23, 1 Chronicles 23, 23 all the way to 26 today, through 26 today, so put your seatbelts on. All right, we just sang that that the Lord is our treasure. That this is one of the cries of our heart, Lord, that, that you, our king, would be our treasure. Now, you don't have to be old to be able to answer this question. You can be young and answer this question. If you knew that perhaps an enemy country had hidden treasure, if they had something incredibly valuable... And you wanted to know, where is this treasure? I need to find this treasure. I need to find their treasure. I think you'd agree with me that a good place to start looking is where they have stationed a whole bunch of fortifications. It's a good, it's a good indication that they have hidden their treasure in this place when it's surrounded by thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of guards. You'd say, I think that that's probably where they've hidden something very, very valuable to them. And so today, we're going to be looking at something that is incredibly beautiful. And we see how David, at the end of his messiahship, we know that David was the first messiah to reign on an eternal throne, the eternal throne, right? Right? David, and then Solomon, and on and on and on, until they finally had a son who would be able to reign eternally on that eternal throne, which was the Lord Jesus Christ. So David is the first of these messiahs that would reign on an eternal throne. At the end of his reign, he is now putting over, he is establishing leadership that his son Solomon can take over. And one of his responsibilities that we're going to see in these 23, 24, 25, and 26, we're going to see he's establishing leadership. Okay? And so we actually are going to look in the next chapter as well. It's going to be temple leadership in these chapters, and then civil leadership or sort of government leadership, um, magistrates, that kind of thing, judges. Okay? But today we're going to be focusing on this idea of temple leadership. And our first point is this that it is precious enough to God to require gatekeepers. Point one is precious enough to God to require gatekeepers. And we're going to begin today at the end. For all you linear people, I apologize in advance. We're starting at the end. The conclusion, if you will, of the four chapters. We're going to begin at the end. After listing the different positions at the temple, we're going to get to those. After listing the different positions in the temple that David provided, he provided tens of thousands of men to to fill all these positions in the temple. He now lists thousands of gatekeepers to guard and protect what the Lord provided for His people in the temple. So the passage ends with gatekeepers. It actually begins there too. He mentions it in the first few verses. But He doesn't describe it until the end. So we're going to start at verse 1 of 1 Chronicles 26. So if you have your Bibles, this one we're going to just read a few verses, not the entire thing of chapter 26, just to get you an idea of this. Okay? 1 Chronicles 26, verse 1. As for the divisions of the gatekeepers, here they have it, of the Korahites, Meshelemiah, the son of Korah, of the sons of Asaph. Now we're going to skip to verse 12. These divisions of the gatekeepers... Corresponding to their chief men, had duties just as their brothers did, ministering in the house of the Lord. They cast lots by fathers' houses, small and great alike, for their gates. Skip to verse 20. And of the Levites, Ahijah had charge of the treasuries of the house of God and the treasuries of the dedicated gifts. The sons of Laden, the sons of the Gershonites belonging to Laden, the heads of the fathers' houses belonging to Laden, the Gershonite, Jeheli, the sons of Jeheli, Zetham and Joel, his brother, were in charge of the treasuries of the house of the Lord. We can also look if you go back to chapter twenty-three, where we're supposed to begin. We see as well that there are, in verse five, four thousand gatekeepers. Okay, so thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of men assigned to guard the temple gates and the treasure of the temple. Too much, you might say. But not if you realized how precious the gift of the temple was. And especially if you realize that the Lord Jesus is the great and final Messiah, and His temple is His body, which is now His church, is included the people who He has saved. Not if you realize the price that He paid, To make her his treasure. And so you get to see how precious the treasure of the Old Testament was and how precious the temple was that the Lord would assign so many men to guard it. Because we're going to see in the next few chapters what was it that made it so precious, that made it worth guarding and defending. Now, the church is going to be guarded as well. The the Word of God says, make sure you guard the church. Not with swords or spears or tasers, as the temple was. Well, not the tasers part. But with the Word of God, it's to be guarded. Making sure that no one speaks words to confuse or rob the people of God of their joy. No one to call what is holy what is unholy. No one to call what is unholy holy no one gets to mess around with the assurance of god's dearly beloved saints and no one being confidence no one being given confidence that shouldn't have confidence that they belong to christ and so what we're going to see is those commands in the new testament regarding guarding and keeping and protecting the church are actually just being, or they're actually uh, what the foreshadowing of the temple was foreshadowing of. And this will help us to understand this. It explains the gift of the church and the leaders who guard it and the members who guard it. Now, modern Christianity, it's popular to use the term gatekeepers in a very insulting way. You know, they would talk about men who would be faithful with the gospel and say, oh, you're just a gatekeeper. And this is because they don't understand the treasure, the preciousness of the saints, of the temple of God. Now perhaps they understand the treasure, but they don't understand the risk. They don't understand the command of God to guard the church, to guard the deposit, and to protect her from wolves in sheep's clothing, false teachers who would come to rob them of their joy. What we want to see here is that the church is precious to Christ not because of who she is in herself. If you're wondering if you're precious to Christ and then you look at me and say, I wonder what about me would be precious to him? You're looking in the wrong direction. The preciousness is in relation to the price he paid for you, which was an infinite price. It was the cost of his own life. More precious than a temple filled with gold and silver and precious jewels. And, as I said, the previous three chapters are going to give us a picture of what is so precious about the temple and what happened to the temple that it is worth being guarded. Now, that brings us to our second point. So it's precious enough for God to require gatekeepers. Second is this communion with God in his household. We already saw that the temple of God was to represent his household. And this is what's being guarded, communion with God in his household. So turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 23, and we're going to read 23 through 24. 23 to 24. We're looking for this idea that that communion with God in his household is what is being guarded. All right. When David was old and full of days, he made Solomon his son king over Israel. David assembled all the leaders of Israel and the priests and the Levites. The Levites, 30 years old and upward, were numbered, and the total was 38,000 men. 24,000 of these, David said, shall have the charge of the work in the house of the Lord. 6,000 shall be officers and judges, 4,000 gatekeepers, and 4,000 shall offer praises to the Lord with the instruments that I have made for praise. And David organized them in divisions corresponding to the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Gershon were Laden and Shimai, Sons of Laden, Jehiel, the chief, and Shetham, and Joel, three. The sons of Shimei, Shelemoth Heziel, and Haran, three. These were the heads of the fathers' houses of Laden. And the sons of Shimai, Jehath, Zena, and Jeush, and Bariah. These four were the sons of Shimai. Jehath was the chief, and Ziza the second, but Jewish. Jehosh and Bariah did not have many sons, therefore they became counted as a single father's house, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, four, the sons of Amram, Aaron, and Moses. Aaron was set apart for the dedica- to dedicate the most holy things, that he and his sons forever should make offerings before the Lord and minister to him and pronounce blessings in his name forever. But the sons of Moses, the man of God, were named among the tribes of Levi. The sons of Moses, Gershom and Eliezer, sons of Gershom, Zebul the chief, the sons of Eleazar, Rehabiah the chief, Eleazar had no other sons, but the sons of Rehabiah were very many. Sons of Izhar, Shelemith the chief, the sons of Hebron, Jeriah the chief, Amariah the second, Jehaziel the third, and Jechemim the fourth. The sons of Uziel, Micah the chief, and Ishiah the second. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. The sons of Mali, Eleazar, and Kish. Eleazar died having no sons but only daughters. Their kinsmen, the sons of Kish, married them. The sons of Mushi, Mali, Eder, and Jeremiah, three. These were the sons of Levi by their father's houses. The heads of the father's houses as were lifted, listed according to the number of the names of the individuals from 20 years old and upward who were to do the work for the service of the house of the Lord. For David said, the Lord, the God of Israel, has given rest to his people, and he dwells in Jerusalem forever. So the Levi, And so the Levites no longer need to carry the tabernacle or any of the things for its service. For by the last words of David, the sons of Levi were numbered from 20 years up, old and upward. For their duty was to assist the sons of Aaron for the service of the house of the Lord, having the care of the courts and the chambers, the cleansing of all that is holy, and any work for the service of the house of God. Their duty was to assist with the showbread, the flour for the grain offering, the wafers of unleavened bread, the baked offering, the offering mixed with oil, and all measures of quantity or size. And they were to stand every morning, thanking and praising the Lord, and likewise at evening. And whenever burnt offerings were offered to the Lord on Sabbaths, new moons, and feast days, according to the number required of them, regularly before the Lord. Thus they were to keep charge of the tent tent of meeting and the sanctuary, and to attend the sons of Aaron, their brothers, for the service of the house of the Lord. The divisions of the sons of Aaron were these, the sons of Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died before their father and had no children. So Eliezer and Ithamar became the priests. With the help of Zadok... Of the sons of Eleazar and Ahimelech, the sons of Ithamar, David organized them according to the appointed duties in their service. Since more chief men were found among the sons of Eleazar than among the sons of Ithamar, they organized them under sixteen heads of the fathers' houses, and of the sons of Eleazar and eight of the sons of Ithamar. They divided them by lot all alike, for they for there were divided them by lot all alike, for there were sacred officers and officers of the Lord among both the sons of Eleazar and the sons of Ithamar. And the scribe Shemaiah, the son of Nethanel, a Levite, recorded them in the presence of the king and the princes of Zadok and the priests, uh, Zadok the priest and Ahimelech the sons of Abiathar and the heads of the father's houses of the priests and of the Levites, one father's house being chosen for Eleazar and one chosen for Ithamar. The first lot fell to Jehoiarib, the second to Jediah, the third to Haram, the fourth to Seoram, the 5th to Malkajah, the 6th to Mijamin, the 7th to Hazak, the 8th to Abijah, the ninth to Jeshua, the 10th the to Shekaniah, the 11th to Elishabib, the 12th to Jachim, the 13th to Huppah, the 14th to jeshi the 15th to Bilgah, the 16th to Emer, the 17th to Hezer, the 18th to Hepazez, the 19th to Pelathiah, the 20th to Jehazkel, the 21st to Jackin, the 22nd to Jamel, the 23rd to Deliah, the 24th to Amaziah. These had as their appointed duty the service to come into the house of the Lord according to the procedure established them by Aaron their father, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded him. And the rest of the sons of Levi, of the sons of Amram, Shubael, the sons of Shubael, Jedidiah, of Rebadiah, the sons of Rebadiah, Ishiah the chief, of the Israelites, Shelemoth, the sons of Shelamith; He-Jahath, the sons of Hebron, Jariah the chief, Amariah the second, Jehaziel the third, Jachamim the fourth, the sons of Uziel, Micah, of the sons of Micah, Shammer, the sons of Micah, Ishiah, the sons of Ishiah, Zechariah, the sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi, the sons of Jehaziah, Bino, the sons of Merari, the sons of Merari, of Jehaziah, Bino, Shotham, Zachar, and Ibri, Of Mali, Eliezer, who had no sons. Of Kish, the sons of Kish, Jeremiel. The sons of Mushi, Mali, Eder, and Jeremoth. These were the sons of of the Levites according to their fathers' houses. These also, the heads of each father's house and his brother alike, cast lots. Just as their brothers, the sons of Aaron, in the presence of King David, Zadok, Ahimelech, and the heads of the fathers' houses of the priests and of the Levites. That is the word of the Lord. All right. communion with god in his household now why do you say that derek well the chronicle first is here focusing on levitical tasks so this is the tribe in the 12 tribes of israel this is the tribe that is specifically dedicated to the temple and the service of the temple And David's organizing all the Levites. He's putting thousands of them here, thousands there. He's assigning them according to the law of Moses. But he's making sure that they are assigned. He's taking responsibility for this. Now, the chronicler doesn't list all the duties of these men. If you've read the book of Leviticus or of Numbers or of Exodus, you'd know that there was a lot of things in the temple that just weren't mentioned. You'd wonder, what about all the sacrifices? What about all these things? I I don't see any of these things listed. He's actually kind of cherry-picking the chronicler. He's cherry-picking of the things that are, um, that are dealing with the results, the benefits of the sacrifices. Now, the last couple of chapters, I think you'd agree, we focus on this idea of sin needing an atoning sacrifice and an animal being punished in, instead of the people, a sacrifice being uh, killed instead of the people. We saw this in full display, right? The angel of the Lord with his sword, hanging over Jerusalem, and the Messiah puts a sacrifice under it. It's just the most beautiful thing. Now, the chronicler seems to be cherry-picking in terms of his explanation. He's noting a couple of these positions that don't deal with the sacrifice for sin, for forgiveness, but the enjoyment of those things. We've seen over and over again that Sacrifices were not only for the sake of acquittal. They weren't only legal. They weren't only to make you to go from guilty to not guilty. They were. But they weren't just for that. The chronicler here focuses on those parts of the temple that provide communion with God. Now this is a result of salvation that Satan wouldn't want even if you offered it to him for free. You can have communion with God. No thanks, he'd say. I hate God. But this is the result of the sacrifices, communion with a holy God. And so here, we're going to draw attention to the non-bloody sacrifices or the non-bloody offerings of the temple. We'll start here with the showbread. Verse 29 of chapter 23. I wonder if you saw this. naming a bunch of people set aside, Levites, their duty, 23-29, their duty was to assist with the showbread, the flour for the grain offering, the wafers of unleavened bread, the bake offering, the offering mixed with oil in all measures of quantity or size. So here, this is a non-bloody sacrifice, you might say. This is an offering that didn't cost anybody their life. Now the showbread, It's also called by other names. Sometimes in the Bible it's called the holy bread. It's also called the bread of the presence. And so the priests were to bake this bread, fresh bread, and put it out. And it was to represent that the Lord was present. The Lord was there. But present for what? What's he there for? What is it demonstrating that he is present to do? Is he present there to judge is he present there to punish sin? Is he there to teach? And the answer to those things is, all oh, yes, the temple is there. He is punishing sin in the temple, of course. But the showbread was meant that he's there to enjoy communion. He's there to have fellowship and communion with them, to offer hospitality, to welcome people into his home. And that's the beauty and significance even of a meal. You... Know this yourself. To invite your, somebody into your home and, and, and to invite them to sit down at your table and feed them is a lovely thing that you are doing. This is a beautiful thing, to welcome people into your home, to enjoy a meal together. A lot more significant than just buying them food and say, hey, go enjoy that somewhere, or even giving them a gift card. Go enjoy a meal by yourself. Now, that might be good, but it's different, and you know that it's different. Because you're participating in one another. The goal of sitting down for a meal is not merely that we both have enough energy to continue on with life, but we're actually taking in each other. We're having participation in each other. We're feasting, each, essentially feasting, on the gift of each other. Now, you can imagine this. I can just illustrate this by if a young man who is prepared to take the burden of leading a family... He's already proven that. Okay, we've established this. He can lead and take care of the family. And if this young man sees a young woman and he's interested in this young woman and he invites her to go to a restaurant, we all know that it's not just so that she could get energy from the food. I sure hope she enjoys the food. No, you guys know. This is what he's doing. I hope she enjoys me. And I'm there to enjoy her. This is what the meal is meant to demonstrate. That God is there in the temple, yes, to judge, yes, to teach, yes, to demonstrate His holiness and glory. It's true. But He's also there for His people to enjoy Him. And get this, for Him to enjoy them. For them to enjoy being enjoyed by Him. This is what In part, the bread of the presence was meant to demonstrate. And so David assigns men to make sure that this will happen. This needs to happen. You make sure. How many men are you going to assign to that? Thousands. (laughs) Why? Because it's important. I want my people to enjoy my presence and to enjoy being enjoyed by God. It is astonishing that the Israelites would get to enjoy a holy God enjoying them, though they knew their sin. Yet God has set his affection on them. And so, dear Christian, rejoice. This is why our Lord Jesus Christ, David and Solomon's great heir, this is why he laid down his life for you. Drinking the cup of judgment dry. Every bit of punishment that you would have deserved from God for your sin, he drank that dry for you on the cross. Taking the reception that you would have deserved by entering the house of God. So that instead, you can enjoy the reception that he deserves walking into the household of God being enjoyed by God the way that Christ only deserves to be enjoyed. And that is what communion with the Lord Jesus through His death and resurrection is meant to have been signified by that showbread. Him delighting in us, we delighting in Him, enjoying the relationship with God that we don't deserve. And so brothers and sisters, if you have repented of your sin, And if you've trusted that Jesus died for your sin and He rose from the dead to reconcile you to God, you need to know that this is what Lord's Supper is a visual promise of. That He invites you to table and that you have a place there and then you are there to have communion with Him, to enjoy Him and Him to enjoy you. And the bread and the wine signify, yes, the feasting and the joy, but also the cost to bring you there. It was the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And your communion with God is as secure as the body and blood of Christ was worth. And if his sacrifice was worthy, then your communion with the Lord is sure. Now that takes us to our third point which is rejoicing in the household of God. Remember, we're trying to understand why the gatekeepers, what makes this so valuable that it's worth protecting. We've seen communion. We also now see rejoicing in this household of God, rejoicing in thanksgiving, not just being thankful, but the enjoyment of thankfulness. I mean, you you know this when when you're teaching a kid to be thankful. You know, you want them to say thank you whenever they get something. You know, if they're going to a friend's house, you would remember what do you say when they give you something? You say thank you. Yes, there is this act of giving thanks, but then there's the the act of enjoying thankfulness, rejoicing in thankfulness. And so, this kind of thankfulness was expressed in the grain offerings. We already read that in verse 29. These were like little bread, cakes, pancakes that were were baked to go along with these animal sacrifices where the animal died. It's going along with. And so what this is doing is it's adding thanksgiving to the offering. So this is not just legal. Oh, it's not less than legal. It's more than legal. This idea of rejoicing and thankfulness. Rejoicing went along with forgiveness. Forgiveness. But this is also expressed not just in those little cakes, the the grain offerings, it's also expressed in words and in song. Now we've already drank from that well of song in our Chronicles series, but we're going to dive right in again. The gift that God gives through the Messiah of making sure his people have true songs to sing you could say this is verbally tasting of the delights that Christ purchased with His blood. Things that are not just wishful, but certain and true. And you can look at the lengths that David and therefore Solomon, as Messiah's little m, you can see that the lengths that they went to make sure that they're rejoicing and delighting in true things about God to make sure that that was rich and full and overflowing. And so... We're going to read chapter 25. David organizes the musicians, is the heading in my, cha- in my, my translation here. 1 Chronicles chapter 25. David and the chief of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jedethon, who prophesied with lyres, with harps, and with cymbals. The list of those who did the work of their duties was... Of the sons of Asaph, Zachar, Joseph, Nethaniah, and Asherah, sons of Asaph, under the direction of Ahaph, who prophesied under the direction of the king. Of Jedethon, the sons of Jedathan, Gedaliah, Jeri, Azari, Jeshiah, Shemai, Hashabiah, Mattathiah, six, under the direction of their father of who prophesied with the lyre, and in thanksgiving, and praise to the Lord. Of Heman, the sons of Heman, Bakiah, Mattathiah, Mattaniah, sorry, Uziel, Shebuel, and Jeremoth, Hananiah, Hananiah, Elahathath, Elatha, Gidilta, Romem to Ezer, Joshbekesah, Malath- <laughs> Malathai, Hathor, Mazioth, all these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer, according to the promise of God to exalt him. For God had given Heman 14 sons and three daughters, they were all under the direction of their father in the music of the, of the house of the Lord, with cymbals, harps, and lyres for the service of the house of God. Asaph, Jiddethon, Heman were under the order of the king. The number of them, along with their brothers, who were trained in singing to the Lord, all who were skillful, was 288. They cast lots for their duties, small and great, teacher and pupil alike. The first lot felt for Asaph to Joseph, the second to Gedaliah, to him and his brothers and his sons, twelve. The third to Zachar, his sons and his brothers, 12. The fourth to Isri, the sons and his brothers, 12. The fifth to Nethaniah, his sons and his brothers, 12. The sixth to Bakaiah, his sons and his brothers, 12. Seventh to Jesheralah, his sons and his brothers, 12. Eighth to Jeshiah, his sons and his brothers, 12. The ninth to Madaniah, his sons and his brothers, 12. The tenth to Shimei, his sons and his brothers, 12. The eleventh to Azarel, his sons and his brothers, 12. The fifth to Hashabiah, the sons and his brothers, sons and his brothers twelve. The 13th to Shebuel the sons and his brothers twelve. To the, to the 14th Mattathiah, his sons and his brothers twelve. It, to the 15th, Jeremoth, his sons and his brothers twelve. To the 16th, Hananiah, his sons and his brothers twelve. To the 17th, Josh Beckishah, his sons and his brothers twelve. To the 18th, Hanani, his sons and his brothers twelve. To the 19th, Melothi, his sons and his brothers twelve. To the 20th, to Ilhatha, his sons and his brothers twelve, to the twenty first, Hothor, his sons and his brothers twelve, to the twenty second, Gidalti, his sons and his brothers twelve, to the twenty-third, Mahazioth, his sons and his brothers twelve, to the twenty fourth, Romem to Ezer, his sons and his brothers twelve. It's the word of the Lord. Uh, Nathaniel, before he is baptized, will have to recite all of those names perfectly. <laughs> Better than I, hopefully. So, these Levites, a lot of them. And I wonder if you notice the detail in organizing them. Could you read this and think that this wasn't important to the Lord and His people? No, you can't. The gift of music, of praising the Lord in song, is incredibly precious to the people of God, and therefore to the Lord their God. I wonder also if you notice, it's kind of odd, it stands out there, where they're prophesying with instruments. Like, well, that's interesting. I, you, you press a note on the piano and it, it prophesies something. The idea is that they had prophecies that went along to song. Now, what does this mean? Well, we, if you turn on the radio or go on the internet, you can find all kinds of beautiful songs. Fantastic songs with great, great melodies. You can find beautiful songs with fantastic lyrics that say beautiful, heartwarming things. But one of the things is that so many of those songs, you can have it playing, you can sing it, it can be beautiful, but if you pay attention to the words, even the good ones, you realize, I'm singing about something that may or may not be true. Like you can sing about something that you want Or that you wish for. You know a young man singing to a young woman. I want to grow old with you. And that's a good hope. It's a beautiful hope. Something you can long for. But it's just a hope. The beautiful thing about the songs of God's people. Is that he instructs them to sing things that are prophecies. You're singing things that are the word of the Lord. So that. As delightful as it is to sing a romantic song about things that you would want for you and your future wife or husband, it is so much sweeter to sing songs that are certainly, certainly, certainly true. Things about God, things about your future that are as sure as God's existence. the people of israel had so many of those beautiful things to sing about didn't they given by the lord from the word of god and we have all of those things blown up our understanding of those things is made so clear as it's fulfilled in what the lord jesus has done the great and last and final messiah but he has given us more things to sing about Instead of singing about promises yet to be fulfilled, that they will be fulfilled, we get to look back on promises already fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our debt has been paid. Our Savior came for us. We have seen the Messiah who will reign forever on that eternal throne. These are beautiful, beautiful promises. They got to sing about a good Messiah, the gift of giving them a Messiah, thanking God and saying, "God bless the Messiah, bless him, make sure he doesn't fall, kill his enemies, take care of his people. And we get to sing about not just a good Messiah, but a perfect Messiah who never failed and who never will because our Messiah is not just David's son. Our Messiah is God's own son. This is why the church ought to be filled with His Word and also with His songs. A song is not merely agreeing that something is true, but rejoicing that it's true. Not just saying, I rejoice, I enjoy that this is true, but actually singing a truth of God's Word is actually taking enjoyment in that which is true. Now, I have to say, and you know this, it is foolish to choose truth because of emotion. You know this. It is foolish to let emotion guide you. Oh, but what a gift it is when your emotion follows and lines up with truth. And this is the gift of singing things that God himself has spoken. What a good gift. So we rejoice in what is... We delight in what is delightful. When we rejoice in what is praiseworthy. The joy and beauty and delight of the truth that the, that of what Christ has done for, her, for His church can evoke the right emotions. And that glorifies God. And we shouldn't be ashamed of it. It is His good gift to us. We sing about the depths of His wisdom and steadfastness his perfections, his glory, his love and sacrifice, the faithfulness of his promises. We can sing about the wisdom and care of his sovereign reign over history. We can rejoice, not just confess with our song that Christ is Lord and call uh, him to be crowned with many crowns, but we can rejoice that it is Christ who is to be crowned with many crowns because he governs all things, every bit of history, every government official, every raindrop, every molecule for the glory of God and the good of His bride. We have so many songs to sing and He insists that that be guarded. Fourth point. Washing all that is holy in the household of God. Washing all that is holy in the household of God. Now as you hear of these beautiful truths of what does it mean to be part of the temple, the communion with God and the rejoicing with God, God enjoying you. It is likely true that you are brought to think about your own sin and think, why would God delight in that which is not delightful? Why would God treat something as worthy that is not worthy? Why is it that he would embrace me as if i belong in his temple when i know my sin disqualifies me now david and solomon organized the levites to keep their assignments and one of those things was found in verse 28 of chapter 23 let's go back 23:28 Let's go to twenty-seven. For the, by the last words of David, the sons of Levi were numbered from twenty years old and upward, for their duty was to assist the sons of Aaron for the service of the house of the Lord, having to care, having the care of the courts of the chambers, the cleansing of all that is holy, the cleansing of all that is holy. You know, there's many temple. There was many articles in the temple. And these things were set apart for God's use and God's use only. So there was forks and, and knives and there was tables and there was dishes and there was cups. And they were meant to be used only for the service of the temple. You couldn't use it to have a family over the night before. And then, okay, now we're going to use in the temple. It was specifically for use in the temple. It's set apart. Or another word for that is Holy. And these things had to be purified. And there was ways of purifying them according to the law of Moses to make sure that they were set apart, that they were holy, that they were cleansed. And he set people aside for that purpose. A multitude of people, in fact, to do that. Which means it is so critical and important for his people. So now we look at the temple of the great Messiah, which is the church. It is those purchased by the blood of David's great son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not made out of forks and knives made of gold. It's now made out of living parts, living pieces of the people of God added to the temple. Every single person who has no right in themselves to be there All of us having guilt for our sins. All of us rightly being called sinners. But we are not welcomed in because we are not chosen because we are holy. But he has made us holy to bring us in. Washed by the blood of Christ. We can see this in 1 Corinthians 6. If you've got your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to begin reading at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? "...do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God." So you read this and you say, I'm certainly excluded from that. Whatever beautiful, beautiful place that temple is, whatever rich communion and rejoicing is inside that household, I'm certainly disqualified. I see myself in several of those things. Thankfully, he goes on. Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so church, we need to be reminded what the washing of the instruments in the Old Testament, what that is meant to signify. We need to be reminded with the washing of the water of the Word, the Word of God constantly washing over the church. To be reminded that this is who we once were. Those identities were things we once were. But are no longer. Because Christ has washed us clean. We now stand before God as holy. Wrapped in the robes of righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. For those crushed by the weight of their sin. But who trust in Christ and who repent, and who long for holiness, but they want to see more of it in their lives than they do. The water of the gospel washes over them, over and over, and says, you are not who you once were. You are struggling with sin and falling into temptation, but you're not a sinner any longer. You are not that anymore. You were that. You are now holy. Rejoice because you are holy in God's eyes. You are a new creation. And also, maybe to the one who confesses Christ but isn't concerned with holiness, the one who embraces sin, the water of the gospel washes over them and it exhorts them and warns them, if they're truly Christians, you are no longer that identity. The way you're acting doesn't fit with your new identity, so repent. Reminds us that they are, it reminds them that they are washed having new identities, no longer adulterers, so stop committing adultery. No longer idolaters, so, so repent of idolatry. You're no longer a drunkard, so repent of drunkenness. You're no longer a homosexual, so repent of homosexuality. That is who you used to be, says the word, says the gospel. Now each of us is going to continue, while still in this life, We're going to feel the pull of our flesh to long for and to embrace some of those things that belong to our old identities. And each of us is going to struggle with an old portion of our old identity, a different one. And those desires and temptations may never go away completely, but the Lord Christ firmly and lovingly declares that those identities, that those with those identities will not inherit the kingdom of Christ but will be crushed by the kingdom of Christ. But you have a new identity, Christian. So embrace it. You were washed. This, brothers and sisters, is what the gift of baptism is meant to signify. Not a washing from sin, but a declaration, a a visual promise of the Lord that all who by faith in Christ come to Him are washed by Him. And so I'm going to ask our brother Nathaniel Wilsey to come forward. Get in the water. And one of our elders, Caleb Simons, is going to come in there with him. Baptism is this public declaration of God, of those who have confessed faith in Christ, that though you once were a stranger, though you once were an enemy a thief, an adulterer, an idolater. But because of your faith in Christ, you have been washed and you are now a new creation. Something to remember for the rest of your life. So this is something to remember. I have been washed. I am a new creation. This gift of baptism is something that we will need in this life to keep being reminded of as Brother Calvin read for us in Romans. It will remind us of this new identity and that we have been washed.